Talk a little bit about what you were taught about Mass and the Eucharist. What did you believe the role of Mass and the Eucharist played in your life? Um, and kind of what were the consequences for not going? Well, you had to go to Mass every week. It was a sin not to go to church on Sunday. Um, I remember when we would have days off here at Relevant, and I was like, what? You don't, <laughs> you don't have to go to church on Sunday? Mass was just simply an obligation. It was a place that you went to on Sundays, and for as crude as it sounds, you put in your time. So you went, you were there for the hour, hour and a half, whatever it took. You went through all the rituals that happened every single Sunday, and then you departed and you went back to your life. Um, mass was very ritualistic. You knew what was coming and when it was coming. And once you went to Mass on Sunday, you were free to do whatever you wanted the rest of the week. You know, receiving communion and going through that, uh, I struggled with that because my mom was Protestant and my dad was Catholic, so when my mom would come to a church, she couldn't take communion with us. And so I forever question that, um, why somebody who believes in Jesus, who Jesus loves and they love Jesus, couldn't receive communion just because they were in a Catholic church. Communion, um, as a kid, it was actually like a break in the action. Wow, we get to get up, have a snack, a little drink here. I understood that it was supposed to re represent God's body and God's blood because it was talked about so much. But there wasn't that understanding of what you're actually doing when you ingest that, when you, when you eat them and when you drink the wine. Getting communion was very important. And um, when I was told that I no longer could get communion, I was like, you know, that was a big blow to me as a longtime lifer Catholic person. That was huge that I couldn't get communion because that was the whole purpose of Mass was to change the body, the, the bread and the wine into Christ's body and blood. And if you couldn't get that, I don't really understand what the whole purpose of going to Mass was for. So that was really kind of heartbreaking when I found out I couldn't do that. I have just a inclination that some people's feathers are going to get ruffled today. Uh, but before I do that, let's quickly review some, some of the things that we covered the first two weeks of this series. We talked about for the first 300 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the church was on the fringes of society. For the first 300 years of existence, Christianity was outlawed and the church suffered immense persecution because they insisted that Jesus was their king, not the Roman emperor. And then something unthinkable happened. In the early 4th century, the Roman emperor Constantine became a follower of Christ. And not long after that, he legalized Christianity and made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. It was actually at this time that Rome began to use the, the name Catholic for the Christian religion. And the word Catholic simply means universal. The, the, the moment that Constantine legalized Christianity and it, became, and, uh, and it became the official religion of the Roman Empire, that's when things started to go south. The church became political because it became married to the Roman government. Salvation, it was no longer about what you believed about Jesus. It was about having a proper relationship with the church and Rome. The church started to build buildings for the very first time called basilicas and began meeting in those buildings for the very first time instead of meeting in homes. And worship, worship for the first time became formal, became liturgical, and a hierarchical priesthood started to form. And then 
Fast forward many, many centuries. In the 16th century, an event referred to as the Reformation occurred. In short, the Reformation started because some leaders within the Catholic Church, like Martin Luther, accused the Catholic Church of tradition and doctrine that was contradictory to the writers of the New Testament. And then through a series of horrific and ugly events, the Catholic Church accused these leaders of heresy and they excommunicated them from the church. And what we now call the, the, what we now call the Protestant Church was born. The Protestant Church is any Christian church that's separated from the Church of Rome during the Reformation or any group or church that's descended from them. Baptists, Lutheran, Methodists, Presbyterian, Evangelical, us, we're, we're a Protestant church. Out of the Reformation, the title Roman Catholic Church became the official name for the Church of Rome, whose head is the Pope, and is still used as the official name today. Now, one of the fundamental points of division that caused the Reformation was around the question, what must I do to be saved? The, the, that question is answered very differently in the Catholic and in the Protestant church. We, along with the Catholic church, believe that every person needs saved because of their violation of sin against Holy Creator God. We, along with the Catholic Church, believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that his sacrifice on the cross in our place made salvation possible. We, along with the Catholic Church, believe the only way a person can be saved is because of God's grace. What we disagree on is how God's grace is received. We believe the writers of the New Testament are very clear that we are saved by grace through faith alone. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. We're saved by grace through faith alone. Over a hundred times in the New Testament, the writers of, of the New Testament proclaim that all that's required to accept God's grace, all that's required for salvation is faith in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus plus nothing. Faith in Jesus. Asking Jesus to be the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our lives. However, the Catholic Church teaches that God dispenses the grace necessary for salvation through the sacraments of the Catholic Church, of which they say there are seven. Baptism, the Eucharist, confirmation, confession, anointing the sick, marriage, and ordination. In the 16th century, the Catholic Church had adopted these seven sacraments as official doctrine. And they state there's no salvation outside of the Catholic Church because God dispenses his grace through the Catholic Church's channels of grace, the sacraments. The sacraments are how God's saving grace is received, but no one sacrament is, has enough grace to save you. Thus, a person has to take advantage of as many means of grace as that are available, that's, that's possibly available to them. Those who ignore the sacraments are lost. Those who accept them are saved because salvation is in the hands of the Catholic Church. And in the end, the question will be whether one has accumulated enough grace to be saved. What must I do to be saved? Well, unfortunately, there's two diver divergent answers are given by the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Two divergent answers that caused the Reformation in the 16th century and that Catholics and Protestants have been divided on ever since. And since we live in Omaha, which is predominantly Catholic, this has created a lot of tension for many of you. Many of you grew up in a home that was Catholic, if not by practice, it, at least by name. I say that I think about 60% of relevant community church is what I call decatholicized Catholics. You grew up Catholic, you disengaged at some point in time, you don't want to go back to the Catholic church, but you have a lot of guilt and confusion and questions and fear and family pressure, and you're not sure why. Well, that's the reason I chose to do this series. 
Throughout this series, I'm, I'm addressing four topics that the Catholic Church, Church teaches about how to get saved and stay saved, you know, stay in God's good graces. I'm unpacking them a little bit, and then I'm shedding some light on what I believe the writers of the New Testament communicated about these. Now, I know this series is creating a lot of tension for some of you. I know this series is creating a lot of emotion for some of you. And you need to know that I only have one goal in this series. My goal in this series is not to bash Catholicism. My goal in this series is not to disrespect your family, not to disrespect your upbringing, not to disrespect your beliefs. I have no desire to do that. And not, my goal in this series is not to talk you out of something or talk you into something. It's just not my goal. My one goal in this series is to point all of us to Jesus, to help all of us take next steps to follow him so that we can break free from some unnecessary religious guilt and fear and confusion and pressure that many of us have or are experiencing and instead, instead experience the life and hope and peace and joy and fulfillment and purpose that Jesus can and wants to give us when we follow him. Now the last two weeks of the series, this week and next week, I'm going to focus in on two of the Catholic sacraments. I'm focusing on two specific ones because there's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of fear or specifically around these two sacraments, both in the Protestant church and from in the Catholic church. And let me just say, I can't go back and review everything I did the last couple weeks, but the last, this, this series is kind of like a book, chapters of a book. And so... I really encourage you to go back and watch the previous two weeks if you weren't here because <laughs> what I said in those two weeks, you understanding that is so paramount to what I'm going to talk about today and next week, but I don't have time to review all of it. So go back and watch if you missed. Now, today I'm going to talk about something you've probably heard of, but maybe never heard it described as. Today I'm going to talk about the Lord's Supper. You've probably heard it called either the Eucharist, which is one of the seven sacraments, Catholic sacraments, or communion. Now, in the Catholic Church, it's called the Eucharist, which I said is one of the seven sacraments that's necessary for salvation, and it takes place at Mass. In Protestant churches, it's called communion, and it's done different from church to church. What you need to know is Eucharist and communion, they're referring to the same thing, the Lord's Supper, but as we'll discover they are not the same thing. This was actually another fundamental point of division that caused the Reformation in the 16th century. Now, some of you who grew up Catholic have a lot of questions, and you have a lot of confusion about what the Eucharist even is. I mean, all you know is it's really important. I mean, that was just drilled into you from a young age. It is really important, but you're not sure why. All you know is you feel guilty, really guilty, for missing Mass, and you're not sure why. You love coming to Relevant. But, man, you've been either internally or from some family members, you've, been, you've just been felt this pressure that you've got to go to Mass as well because you've maybe been told or told yourself, like, this doesn't count. Like, this doesn't count. So, like, you go to Mass before or after because this isn't real. Like, this doesn't count. And you're like, why doesn't it count? And you're like, I don't know. It just doesn't count. Listen, you're not alone in your confusion. Some of you who grew up in a Protestant church, Lutheran or Methodist or Presbyterian, you're also confused. You have all kinds of questions about what communion is and the significance of it. You can't figure out why some churches take it every week, some, why some churches do it once a month, why some churches seemingly do it never. You don't know why some churches use wine, why some churches use juice. 
why sometimes it's passed around in little cups, why sometimes you got to move around and go get a piece of bread and dip it in a cup. And, you, and, and you've been told it's important, you're just not sure why, and you really don't understand why you're not allowed to take communion when you go to a Catholic wedding or a Catholic funeral. You're all confused. So, but regardless of your confessions and regardless of your confusions that some of you have, the one thing I've noticed about most people who grew up in church, whether it was Catholic church or Protestant church, is that there are a lot of emotions around this subject. In fact, there is so much emotion around this subject that some of you have already made up your mind that you're not coming back if I say something you don't agree with, which is a huge bummer. Because most of us don't even know why there's so much, why, why we're so emotional about it. We have no idea why. Listen, I realize this is a sensitive, sensitive subject that I probably shouldn't even broach. But I'm going to. And I'm going to for one reason. I love you. I truly love you. Today, I'm going to explain what the Lord's Supper is based on how I believe the writers of the New Testament understood it. And as I do, if some tension starts rising up in you, if you want to get up and walk out or you want to throw something at the TV or you want to write me a nasty email later or throw something at me, I just want you to stop and ask why. Why are you so emotional? Is it because what I'm saying is unbiblical? Or is it possibly because of something else in you that has nothing to do with that? So the first question we've got to answer is, where did this whole idea of the Lord's Supper come from anyway? Well, to answer that, you need to know a little bit about ancient Judaism. 1,500 years before the life of Jesus, God gave the Israelites, who became known as the Jews, the law. Known as the Mosaic Law. Also known as now the Old covenant. In the law, there were 600 plus laws and commands that Israelites were required to live by as God's people. Breaking any part of that law was called sin. And part of the law included provision for sin. According to the law, sin is such a violation against Holy Creator God that it bears his wrath, we talked about that in week one, and comes with a huge penalty. And that penalty is death. So when an Israelite sinned, they were required to sacrifice a perfect, unblemished lamb to God. The sacrificial lamb was a propitiation for sin. The word propitiation means it's a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God towards sinful humanity. The, sacrificial's lamb, the sacrificial lamb's blood covered, atoned for, propitiated for their sin. Now, they knew the blood of an animal was not equal to the value of a blood of a human, but according to the law, it was enough for the time being. The sacrificial lambs were a vivid reminder of the cost of sin and the need for, for forgiveness. The, the, every time they would sacrifice a lamb, is essentially they were saying, hey God, we realize we deserve your wrath. We realize that we deserve to die for sinning against you. We're so grateful that you're allowing this lamb to be sacrificed in our place. For 1,500 years before Jesus walked the earth, Jews had been sacrificing lambs to atone for their sins, for the propitiation of their sins. The challenge was that sacrifices had to re be redone, had to be done repeatedly, over and over and over again. There was no final, there was no perfect sacrifice for sin. Yet. Fast forward to first century Judea. 
on the night that Jesus was unjustly arrested by the Jewish religious leaders, Jewish Jesus gathered his 12 Jewish disciples together for one final meal with them. We call this meal the Last Supper, but it was actually a Jewish Passover meal. A meal the Jews had been celebrating once a year, every year, for 1,500 years to remember what the blood of lambs did within their sacrificial system. During this meal, there was a specified time where they would take bread and break it and pass it out, and then a a specified time where they would take wine and distribute it and drink to remember what God did for them through the body and blood of sacrificial lambs. But this time, as Jesus broke the bread and distributed the wine, he said something so offensive to Jews that they should have walked out of the room. And Luke records it in Luke 22. And he Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Essentially, Jesus is saying, Hey, from now on, when you celebrate the Passover, when you eat this meal together, the meal that your ancestors had celebrated for 15 year, 1,500 years and eaten together every single year, you are now to do this in remembrance of me. Let me tell you how offensive and sacrilegious this was. This would be like me getting up here next week and saying, hey, guys, from now on, every Christmas, we're going to celebrate Christmas as my birthday. Would you come back? No, you'd be like, Ronnie's lost his mind. Like, what has he just done? He's changed the whole nature of Christmas. This is exactly what Jesus did right here. He said, hey, guys, from this point forward, this Passover bread, this will represent my body that in a few short hours will be broken for you. And this Passover wine is to represent my blood, which will soon be spilled out on your behalf to establish my new covenant with you. I mean, Jesus, he already made the audacious claim that he had the authority to forgive sin. Now Jesus claimed to be the final sacrifice for sin. For 1,500, Jesus, Jesus is saying, for 1,500 years, you've been sacrificing lambs. For 1,500 years, those lambs, they were never enough. You need a sinless someone to be sacrificed in your place to ultimately atone for the death that you deserve for your violation of sin against Holy Creator God. I am that sinless someone. I am the perfect, the ultimate, the final lamb of God who would take the sin of humanity upon myself. Through my voluntary sacrifice, I will atone for, I will be the propitiation for the sin of the world once and for all. Now, as you can imagine, these guys, they're stunned. And they still didn't get it. We wouldn't have gotten it either. The next day, Jesus was voluntarily beaten to the point that blood spilled out of his body. He was nailed to a cross, and he was crucified. And as he took his last breath, his followers believed they were witnessing a tragic and confusing end. Jesus had predicted his own death as a necessary sacrifice for your sin and my sin. But if the story had ended there, there would be no story to tell. I mean, because everyone dies. But Jesus, he also predicted his resurrection. And when he rose three days later, they knew that Jesus was who he says he was, and he was the only one who could do everything that he claimed to do. See, according to the writers of the New Testament, Jesus' death was the final sacrifice of God's final lamb. Now, from this point forward, the, the, the church, which was just Jewish at this point, the only people 
immediately after had put their faith in Jesus, at this point, they were just Jewish people. So we have these Jewish followers of Christ who make up the church. From this point forward, they started celebrating their annual Passover meal just like Jesus instructed them to celebrate it. They started celebrating it, not at how they celebrated it for the 1,500 years before. They started celebrating it in remembrance of Jesus. But then Gentiles, and whenever you see the word Gentiles in the Bible, that means anyone who's not a Jew. Gentiles started putting their faith in Jesus, and when they started putting their faith in Jesus, things started to change because these people weren't Jewish. These people have never celebrated Passover before. The Passover didn't mean anything to them. So this annual Passover meal morphed, and it morphed into being called the Lord's Supper. The only, let me say that again, the only, I'll say it one more time so you got it, the only reference in the New Testament to the Lord's Supper is 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. That's it. 1 Corinthians is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the, to, the, uh, to the church, the community of Christ followers in the city of Corinth about 20 years or so after the events of Jesus' life. And here's what he told him. He's what he wrote to him. He said, for I received from the Lord what I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks. And by the way, that phrase, give thanks, in Greek is eucharistia. And it's where the Catholic Church gets the phrase eucharist from. Come back to that in a second. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he, he comes. Now, we have no idea how often the first century church did this. All we know all we know is that they celebrated a potluck-style meal together in homes called the Lord's Supper that resembled something like the Jewish Passover meal, where at some point they gave thanks, then at some point in time they broke bread to remember Jesus' body broken for them, and then at some point they drank from a cup of wine to remember Jesus' blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, which was shed as a propitiation for our sins, which was shed to establish his new covenant with us. Now, if you're familiar with the Catholic Church at all, you know that the Eucharist does not resemble how the first century church celebrated the Lord's Supper, and it's taken on a completely different meaning. The question is, how did that happen? And there's no short or easy way to answer that question, but I will try to do the best I can, and I'm given very high level, leading a, a lot of detail out here. Long story short, when things started to change was in the 4th century. It was in the 4th century when Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, it's when the church started to build, started building and meeting in basilicas instead of homes. And it's when the hierarchical of priesthood began to form. As time went on, the more the priesthood grew. And the more the liturgy that accompanied it grew with it. In the late 4th century, a Catholic bishop proposed to replace the Lord's Supper with the liturgy called Mass. And mass is a, a, a word whose root meaning is derived from the Latin misa, which means to send or to dismiss. And it was proposed at this time that the non-baptized person was sent or dismissed out of the room when the ceremony of the Lord's Supper happened. 
Fast forward many centuries to the 13th century. In the 13th century, three things happened. First, the cup of the Lord's Supper was removed from non-clergy. Second, in the 13th century, mass was officially instituted and replaced the Lord's Supper. And third, in the the 13th century, the word Eucharist began to be used for the bread and the wine in the ritual of mass. Over the next 300 years, the tradition and the doctrine around mass and the Eucharist, it became dogma. And by the time you get to the 16th century, here's what it looks like. Mass is declared a a propitiatory sacrifice offered to God for both the living and the dead. Second, the Eucharist became the liturgical centerpiece of Mass, and transubstantiation was officially declared as doctrine. Transubstantiation, which states, in Mass, at the words of the priests, the bread and the wine become the actual, literal body and blood of Jesus, even though the appearances of bread and wine remain. When a small bell is sounded, the miracle is accomplished. The priest then literally sacrifices Jesus just as real as when he he had been sacrificed on the cross. The Catholic Catechism states, The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of of priests who then offered himself on the cross. cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in the divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory. Third, in the 16th century, the Eucharist was officially named as one of the seven sacraments. And as one of the seven sacraments, it's necessary to get saved and stay saved because it's through the sacraments that God's grace is dispensed and God's grace is received. Okay, if you were kind of narrowed down, the, you know, what the, what the Catholic Church teaches, it's to one statement, it's this. During Mass, through the Eucharist, Jesus is literally crucified again as a propitiatory sacrifice. As I said earlier, this is one of the fundamental points of division that caused the Reformation in the 16th century. But here's what you got to know. If this Catholic doctrine is true, if this is true, I mean, hear me, if this is truth, it's estimated that Jesus is literally sacrificed 200,000 times a day worldwide. If this Catholic doctrine is true, the guilt and pressure that you feel from yourself or your family for missing Mass is completely justified. You should feel guilty. And you should feel pressure. If it's true. If this Catholic doctrine is true, it means that you need to re-engage fully in the Catholic Church and get your butt to Mass because you are living in sin and outside of God's saving grace. However, I believe you can put all that guilt behind you and I believe you can put all that pressure behind you. And the reason is, is because I believe Mass in the Eucharist are man-made traditions and man-made doctrines and should not be confused with, with what Jesus did with his disciples at the first Passover meal. Those two things are completely different. But to understand why I say that, the question that must be answered is, can Jesus be offered as a propitiatory sacrifice again, and must he be? Can that happen, and must it be? 
According to the Catholic Church, the answer is yes. But the answer, but the answer is a resounding no according to Jesus and a resounding no according to the writers of the New Testament. Jesus made that crystal clear through three powerful words. Three words he spoke the day after he shared his final Passover meal with, with his disciples, why he hung on the cross. And John, who was an eyewitness to it, records it. When he, Jesus, had received the drink, Jesus said, here's the three words, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus' final words, basically saying, the mission my heavenly Father has sent me for is complete. The work of paying for the penalty of sin is paid in full. The wrath of God has been completely turned. It is finished. And then Jesus died. And then three days later, he rose. And then 40 days later, he physically ascended into heaven where he is physically seated at the right hand of our heavenly father as our mediator, as our high priest. We talked about that last week. Until one day, he physically returns. And the apostle Paul made made sure that we didn't misunderstand Jesus' final words in the New Testament book of Romans. Romans, which was actually a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome in the first century. And here's what Paul wrote. For we know that since Christ... Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The writers of the New Testament state over and over and over again, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of sins was accomplished once and for all. The Catholic Church, rather than accepting the new covenant, new teaching, uh, new, new Testament teaching that Jesus sacrificed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins was accomplished once and for all, went back to the old covenant. Went back to the Old Testament sacrificial systems where lamb system where lambs had to be sacrificed repeatedly. Therefore, they concluded that Jesus can and must be offered as a propitiatory sacrifice again and again and again. The Catholic Church teaches that God's saving grace is dispensed through the sacrament of the Eucharist. The writers of the New Testament state that we are saved by grace through God's, through, by God's grace through faith in Jesus alone. By asking Jesus to be the forgiver of our sins and leader of our life. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus is literally sacrificed again through Mass. The writers of the New Testament state that Jesus is physically at the right hand of our Heavenly Father, so he can't possibly be sacrificed again. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus must be sacrificed again as a propitiatory sacrifice. The writers of the New Testament state that Jesus accomplished the propitiation for sins completely on the cross. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus' sacrifice needs to be repeated because salvation is a process that is never finished. The writers of the New Testament state that after Jesus died on the cross, It is finished. The Catholic Church teaches that re-crucifixion is needed. The writers of the New Testament state that re-crucifixion is impossible and trying to do it diminishes what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Bottom line, the writers of the New Testament state that Jesus' sacrifice can never be repeated but but must always be remembered. Can never be repeated but it must always be remembered. Because of that, Mass and the Eucharist was rejected during the Reformation, and Protestant and Catholic Church, uh, and, and the Protestant Church at that point in time, began calling it, calling the Lord's Supper, communion. Just like at Jesus' last Passover meal with his disciples, communion is a unique time of sharing intimate fellowship, intimate communion with our Lord together. 
And communion is a unique time where we, the church, declare our unity, declare our communion with each other because of our unity, because of our communion with Jesus. Unlike the Catholic Church, we don't believe God's saving grace is dispensed or received through communion. But we do believe it's significant. We believe communion is significant because it's a unique time to remember, to self-examine, and to worship together. It's a unique time to remember, to remember Jesus' death, that he, that he, uh, that, that he did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that we deserve death, but he took our place, that on the cross he paid the price in full, that, that through faith in him our, we're forgiven for our past, our present, and our future sin, sins. And it's significant because as we do, he fills us with his peace and assurance of our salvation. It's to remember Jesus' resurrection, that we can trust him because he defeated death. And it's significant because as we do, he fills us with his strength. It's a time to remember Jesus' promised return. And it's significant because as we do, he fills us with his hope. Communion, furthermore, it's a unique time to self-examine. I said earlier that the only other place in the New Testament, the only other place in the New Testament where the Lord's Supper is mentioned, other than at Jesus' last Passover meal with his disciples, is 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And in this letter to the church in Corinth, Paul warns them not to take communion in an unworthy manner. I'll let you read what he meant by that yourself, but a broad application of this would be to self-examine. To self-examine if there is any sin in our life hurting our relationship with, with, with our Heavenly Father. And then choosing to repent at that moment if there is. Which means I'm going to turn from my sin, Jesus, and I'm going to turn back toward you. It's significant because as we take a next step to follow Jesus in that way, our relationship with him grows. And as our relationship with him grows, he transforms us more to who he's created a, a, us to be. Furthermore, it's an opportunity to self-examine the health of our relationships with one another. And it's significant because as we do, he may prompt us to love, to forgive, to reconcile with someone. And as we take a next step to follow Jesus in this way, he fills us together with his life-giving presence. Furthermore, communion is a unique time to worship, to praise him for who he is, to praise him for what he has done, to praise him for what he will do, to express our gratitude to him for what he accomplished for us through his death and resurrection, to glorify him for the God that that he is. And it's significant because as we do, he fills us with the life and hope and peace and joy and assurance and strength that can only come from him. Unlike the Catholic Church, we don't believe the bread and the wine become the literal body and blood of Jesus. But we do believe that as we remember, self-examine, and worship in this way together, he is present with us. Not more present than any other time, just present in, a, in ways that are unique to when we do this together. Jesus' sacrifice can never be repeated, but must always be remembered. And one of the unique ways we do that is through communion. That's what I believe communion is and why we take it according to the writers of the New Testament. But the one remaining question is, when, how often, and where should we take it? If you grew up in, in, a, in a Catholic church or a Protestant church, Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, whatever, you probably have an answer for when and how often and where you think communion should be done. 
You, I guarantee you do. You should be done every week. You should be done once a month. You should do it on Sunday morning. You should do it in a different environment. It should be done by passing out. Everyone sit there and kneel. It should be done by moving around and kneeling. And the bread should be broken. It should be real bread that should be dipped in cup. Don't even use juice. It better be real wine. Like, you've got all kinds of ways that you think communion should be done. Whatever your answer is, you probably have a lot of emotion about it. Why? What's your answer based on? Scripture? Probably not. It's only one time in all the New Testament. It's written about 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. That's it. And when Paul wrote about it, he wrote nothing about when it's supposed to be taken, how often it's supposed to be taken, how to take it. Nothing. Not a thing. I mean zilch. And yet we're all emotional. Well, if it's not based on the Bible... The only other option is from the tradition you grew up in. That's the only other option. And tradition isn't bad. It's just not gospel. It's just man-made. So let me tell you how we do it here at Relevant. At Relevant, we take communion once a month at First Thursday. First Thursday is our monthly gathering of worship and communion. Guess what night it takes place every month? Yeah, you get it. It's real creative. <laughs> first Thursday, 7 p.m. here at the Relevant Center. And here's why we do it once a month at First Thursday is because we place such a high value on communion. It is such a unique time that to remember, to self-evaluate, to self-examine, and to worship. And in order to do that in a way that it's significant and you're not just running through the motions, you need time and you need space. You need time and space that we can't create on Sunday morning. People who have come into Relevant from other churches have left in droves over this from our church. I mean, all pissed. <laughs> Just left. Why? Because of scripture? Nope. Because of tradition. We should do it every Sunday. Why? Because of scripture? Nope. Because of tradition. We should do it on Sundays. Why? Because of scripture? Nope. Because of tradition. Guys, <laughs> I could talk about this forever, but I'll just say it real quick. When Jesus did this for the very first time, it was at a Passover meal that took place once a year. The first church started doing it after that once a year. We do it once a month. You know what that means? We're overachievers. <laughs> like, that's what that means. And I know some people do it First Thursday and go, well, we do it on Sunday morning, but this is important to me. And I go, well, what's, you should come to First Thursday. And I don't have time. Well, then it's not that important to you. <laughs> and they get all mad at me, but that's the truth. You make time for what's important to you. Listen, if you want my honest opinion, I'll say this, and i got to get done. <laughs> if you want my honest opinion, it should be done over a meal in tea life groups. Not even in rows. Talk about that later. <laughs> I don't need something thrown at me today, geez. Jesus' sacrifice, it can never be repeated, but it must always be remembered. And one of the unique ways we do that is through communion. So if that's true, if it's true, I invite you, I challenge you to do two things. Number one, make communion, if you're part of Relevant, make communion a priority by making First Thursdays a priority. Like, number two, here's my challenge and here's my invitation to you. Ask this question every time you take communion in the future from this point forward. 
How should I respond to Jesus once and for all sacrifice for me today? That's the question when you take communion. That's the question to pray through. That's the question you need time to ponder through. How can I or should I remember right now, self-examine right now, or worship right now? And if God puts something on your heart and on your mind, do it. Do it because of the significance of it when you do. Now here's what we're going to do today. We're going to practice. We're going to practice doing this by taking communion together as we close. And as I, after I pray, the ushers are going to pass out the elements. If you're in the room, this is what it looks like. And there's two little flaps on it, a top one where underneath the wafer is, and then a bottom one for the juice. As soon as you get the elements, start opening that up. If you're online and you want to take, you can go get something that represents bread, something that represents juice, any type of liquid, and I'll lead you through it. As they're passing out, I want you to take time to pray through this question. How should I respond to Jesus once and for all sacrifice for me today? And if God puts something on your heart, respond, and then I will lead us into all taking it together. But as I pray right now, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if you haven't asked Jesus to be the forgiver of your sins and leader of your life, I believe the best time to do that is right now. Because then you can take communion and truly remember the significance of what Jesus did for you. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we just praise you, Jesus, and thank you for being our propitiatory sacrifice, for atoning for our sins once and for all. Right now, we worship you, we remember you, and we self-examine because of that. Lord, for anyone who's never put their faith in you, Jesus, I pray that during this time, they choose to do that. They confess their need for a Savior. They say, Jesus, I believe you are that Savior because of your death and resurrection. And right now, I'm asking you to be the forgiver of my sins, my Savior. I'm asking you to be the leader of my life, my Lord. I pray that they choose to do that right now. In Jesus' name, amen.